from Acts chapter 17, verses 23 through 25. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not, need, does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath in all things. Will you pray with me? Our Lord, our God, we ask for a, we, and we petition for your spirit to enlighten our minds, to stretch us and to grow us, to conceive of how we know you are alive, you are true, and you are calling us to yourself. Bless this time and this morning uh, for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, a little bit of a side note. Raise your hand if you get an update on your phone every Sunday about how much time you spent on your screen. Does anybody get that? Does anybody? Who's guilty today? Who feels a little guilty today? Who's went up? Well, mine went up. I was a little shocked I got up here, so it's confession time. Mine up went 47% this past week. And then I gasped. I'm like, do I need to start the service off with confession? And then I remember, no, I watched three three-hour debates of whether God exists or not. Therefore, you should thank me. <laughs> because I slaved under that rigorous study. And so I say that uh, because we are in a momentous passage in the book of Acts. It's Paul at the Areopagus. It's his defense about the existence of the God of the Bible before um, the the aristocracy of Athens, the philosophers of his day, the Stoics, the academics of his day. He is defending the gospel between those who are intellectually rigorous. They desire to know and to search and to debate. And so Paul gives a defense for the God whom we believe in and his gospel. But to recap a bit before we jump into the passage in Acts 17, I want you to know this, that Paul has been forced out of a city. In fact, he's been forced out of two cities as he's preaching the gospel. As he goes into the synagogues, reasoning from the scriptures that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. In Thessalonica, he's kicked out. He's run out of town. But then he goes to Berea, and he's actually received Last week we learned about how do we study Scripture in such a way that it benefits us. It develops our mind and it grows our faith. But while Paul was being received in Berea, the people from Thessalonica still didn't like it. He was still a little too close. So they entered that city and forced him out. And he goes across the sea and now he is in Athens. And he's waiting Silas and Timothy to join him, to continue the work of taking the gospel to the Gentile world. But what happens? What happens in Athens? Well, Paul doesn't sit idly as he's waiting for his friends to come. What Paul is going to do is to confront a worldview. He's been confronting a worldview every time he enters a new city, but this one in particular is unique. He's gonna, he is going to confront a worldview that is devoid of the knowledge of who God is. So Paul confronts a worldview, but he requires confidence to do so. And so, brothers and sisters, this morning, my hope is that when we look at Paul's example of how we confront a worldview that is drastically different than ours, how do we go about doing it? And secondly, do we have the confidence that God and His gospel and the rationale behind why we believe what we believe can academically hang and be on par with the rest of the academic world? There's some subset in me, there's a predisposition that I have, I've heard it in this church, I've been around other people, where we think our, an academic discussion about faith in God is not something that we can ever enter into. It's not true. The foundation for logic and reason are found in the nature of who God is. And so brothers and sisters, this morning my hope is to instill confidence within us that the academic rigors of this world, the academic acumen of this world, that would set the bar has been reached by faithful men and women, and it started with Paul. It started long ago. 
And so in our time in Acts this morning, I pray that you will accept that the gospel belongs in the marketplace of ideas. This is not an assertion I'm telling the world saying, hey, I demand that our gospel be in amongst you. I'm telling us as Christians, you and I need to accept with confidence the truth that the gospel belongs in the marketplace of ideas. Look with me in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 21. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, that's Silas and Timothy, to come, the rest of his entourage to join him, he was deeply distressed when he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews, with those who worshiped God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling of the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting because what would you say, because what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling and hearing something new. So Paul is finding himself in a new city, an area he's never been in, one that the gospel has not gone to, but he does not sit idle. Paul is not an idle man. He's not going to wait for his entourage to show up. Paul gets to work. He wants to stay busy doing what the Lord has called him to do, sharing the gospel. And so Paul continues his mission to the Gentiles. But as to his MO, he starts in the synagogues. He reasons from the scriptures with the Jews that are there and the Greek God-fearers. That Jesus is who he says he is. He's Lord and Messiah. But that discussion needs to stop when the synagogue is out. And so Paul, in and of himself, says, i got to keep preaching this message. And so this reasoning spills over into the marketplace. Paul spills the message of the gospel out into the Athenian air. And was it received? Did people want to listen to it? In fact, what we would equate as street corner preaching is essentially what's taking place right here. He's a street corner preacher. But the marketplace is key to understand. In Athens and in the ancient world, the marketplace is where it's the hub of the city. It's more than the selling and buying of any goods. It's where politics, religion, and philosophy are debated on an open stage. And the debate would continue if the message was, has some merit and can continue, but if the person was ignorant, if they weren't worth their time, no one would in, engage with them. But what we read about here is as the gospel presentation is overflowing from the synagogue into the streets, Ah, the philosophers of Athens are interested in what Paul has to say. They want to know this message that he's presenting. Is he preaching about foreign deities, Jesus and the resurrection? At that time, the resurrection, in their minds, they thought it was another deity because that's parlance with them. The resurrection would have been a word that they understand as another god. And so is he teaching other deities? This is something new. We're interested. And so they debated the Epicureans and the Stoics are two philosophical uh, schools that rivaled each other. They were different in what they pursued, and yet Paul engaged them both. Luke lumps them together. This is a worldview that is apart from God, and then there's Paul arguing a worldview that comes from God. And we are in a debate. Now at this time, Athens was no longer a powerful and splendid city from the golden era of Greek hegemony. However, it did retain its cultural, religious, and philosophical significance after Rome's conquest of the Peloponnese. It was the academic heart of the Eastern Mediterranean, if not the whole empire. And guess what? Paul was in his element. Know this. Academics were Paul's people. He was born to preach to the Athenians. He's born to preach to the Gentiles in particular, but knowing his background, he was born in Tarsus. He's a Roman citizen. He was educated and reared up in Jerusalem. 
The university in Tarsus taught the Stoic philosophy, and yet while in Jerusalem, he was top of his class in the top school of Gamaliel. In essence, Paul had PhDs of his day. If anyone was qualified to share the gospel with the Athenians and the Stoics and the Epicureans, it was Paul. The academics were his people. But how did those people receive Paul? Well, remember what they just said to him. What is this ignorant show-off trying to say? That's what they thought of him. The literal translation of that, that term, ignorant show-off, is in their terminology would be seed pecker. It's kind of the equivalent of what we would say, a bird brain. What is this bird brain trying to tell us? And so we have this, di- this description of how the world sees Paul, these philosophers, his peers, if you will. They see him as a bird brain, and yet he gets an invite, a very prestigious invite, to the Areopagus. How? How does one go from being a bird brain in their sight, just when they're looking at, to one where we're going to invite you to the prestigious area of the Areopagus where you can tell us about what you're preaching? Because his message has merit. It has nothing to do with the man. It has everything to do with the message. The gospel belongs in the marketplace of ideas. Even if you or I are unconvinced of ourselves, the gospel does. And it always has, from the very beginning. What's taking place here, and what actually we should see, is that the gospel is making headway into the Gentile world. So despite being an ignorant show-off, the sufficiency of his argument for Jesus and his resurrection grants him access before the Areopagus, before the people that make decisions, before the highest council of the land as far as intellect and scholastic pursuit goes. But in order to do so, when Paul enters into it, when he gets the invite and accepts it, there's one major thing that he undertakes He contextualizes the gospel to their culture. The gospel contextualizes to culture. We need to be confident that it belongs, and we need to be confident that it can contextualize to anyone we're speaking with. Read with me verse 22. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as one passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which it was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The Areopagus, or or Mars Hill, it's more commonly known, is a literal location within the city of Athens. You can go there today. You can see it. However, the name of the area came to represent the ruling council of Athens because they probably met on the Areopagus, but in this terminology, the Areopagus was made up of scholars, professors, philosophers, students, and the city's aristocracy. And they would sit as a gathered council to debate and argue routinely whether something can continue to be preached or not, what the decisions are for the city of how to rule and to spend money. And for many, this was their highest form of entertainment. This is the way they passed the time. Notice what Luke says a little earlier. They love to discuss new things. This was in their appetite. So they hear Paul, here's the next new thing. Let's debate it rigorously. So let's invite this ignorant show-off, this bird brain, to the most prestigious place. Just to get a little bit of an example of what's taking place here, what the, what, what the Grand Old Opry is to country music, the Areopagus is to philosophy. You haven't made it until you've played in the Grand Old Opry. You haven't made it as a philosophical pursuit unless you've presented it at the Areopagus. So you know you've arrived when you've presented on the biggest stage. And that's what's taking place here. That's why Luke includes this. And so Paul may be an ignorant show-off, but in the eyes they cannot deny his words. Why? Because apart from the man, the message has merit. 
And so God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need us to make it more reasonable, the argument. He doesn't need to be, us to be super eloquent in, eloquent in the way we speak, although that is helpful. We can grow in that area. But God has equipped us with the ability to instead contextualize this gospel message with those whom we're around. And so Paul delivers to them what he's received first from the Lord, the gospel, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the first thing we recognize in this passage is Paul demonstrates knowledge of his audience's belief. Paul knows whom he's speaking with and speaking to. Paul is not ignorant. What does he say? I see you are extremely religious. This statement that Paul is giving, please don't equate it with flattery, for they would have looked down of anything of being buttered up. Paul is merely stating a fact. You people are religious. In fact, you're so religious, I found a tomb, I mean an altar to a God that you don't know yet because you anticipate finding out more gods. So Paul is merely stating a fact. But then what does Paul do? Paul accepts their beliefs, but does not approve them. Jeff conveyed this point two weeks ago. When Paul's preaching in Thessalonica, how do we be relational ambassadors? How do we be good ambassadors of the gospel? Well, accepting beliefs and approving them are two different things. Paul says, I know you have an altar to an unknown God. Let me share him with you. Paul is not co-opting this altar as being good. Instead, he's just using it as a beachhead for the gospel's invasion into their thinking. He needs to find the beachhead, the bridge in which I can now open the door and step through. What is the commonality that you and I have as creations of God to be able to convey and contextualize the gospel? Well, it's general revelation. And so I asked this initial question, if Paul was at his Areopagus, where is ours? Where is our marketplace of ideas to trade beliefs and philosophies? They're certainly in the universities still. It's still within uh, capital buildings and politicians discussing it, but I would argue that most of us if not all of us, those areas are not within the realm of possibility to discuss the things of God. So let's refine our question to the scope that we find ourselves in. Where is our Areopagus or marketplace of ideas? Where do you and I find ourselves? I would suppose that it's on driveways, it's over fences, it's at soccer fields, it could be in bars and coffee shops and salons. For me, this week it was in a barber's chair. And it certainly is in our workplaces on our streets, out hiking. That's where we engage in the transfer of ideas and beliefs. But in order to do so, we can't be ignorant of the people we're talking about. Do we know what they believe, where they're at, where they're starting from? See, the gospel of Jesus can't find a beachhead in cult... Excuse me, the gospel of Jesus can find a beachhead in any culture, but it takes the evangelist, that's, that's you and I, it's you and me, to know our audience and accept the people where they are then like Paul, when we do that, when we recognize the beachhead and where we can transfer these ideas, we bring them essentially to three questions. Is there a God? Does he speak? And what does that mean for me? Is there a God? Does he speak? And what does that mean for me? Everyone's different. Everyone's going to answer that question, but depending on where they, what, what answer they give for these questions or what answer you assume they give, it lines up how the discussion is going to go. For Paul, in this place, is there a God? What would their answer be? Well, there are many gods. But in Paul's saying, but you don't know the one true living God. So you're a deist. So that's his beachhead. You're very religious. Well, let me share you the, the true religion, the one of the creator God. Well, does he speak? What would their answer be? Yeah, he speaks through oracles. He th speaks through many different people. 
But Paul's going to enlighten them in a different way, or at least I'm sure he would like to, of his special revelation through the Old Testament and the New. And what does that mean for me? Well, Paul's going to get there in a second. But the first thing he communicates to them and his argument for his gospel is starting with who God is. And so he starts in verse 24 through 25 that God is the self-sufficient creator. God is the self-sufficient creator. The God who made the world and everything in it. He is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. Everything exists because of him who created it. And he alone sustains it without need and is not supported by it. What is Paul doing in this statement? He's pushing back on the notion of the relationship between the gods and, and creation. Any notion that temples or human worship bring anything to God as a transactional relationship should not be counted as worthy. See, aspects of Greek religious life saw the people appeasing the gods to get what they needed. And the gods supplied humanity with the things they wanted because the gods needed worship and adoration. They required that. It's a transactional relationship. And so Paul's first premise to the uh, Athenians, God is the self-sufficient creator. He needs nothing from us. Temples, idols, they don't serve him. They can't serve him. These are created things. He is greater than us. And because he is the self-sufficient creator, that also falls into his second point. God is the sovereign Lord. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. If he is the self-sufficient creator, then he has the right to rule and to govern his creation as the only sovereign king. There is no other. There is only one. And so the existence of humanity over the whole earth where they have been established, where they've stopped, the times empires rose and fell, poignant to the Greek because they were the last great civilization until Rome came. This is a sign of, of this sovereign Lord's authority. And by extension, if he has the authority to place people around the world, he also has the authority to expect what is good and what is bad, right, to determine what is right from wrong. And as we'll see in a moment, he expects his creation to abide under his rule. So he's the, he's the God, God, he is the self-sufficient creator. He is the sovereign Lord. But that also leads into this next point. That God cares what happens because he's a relational God. God is relational. He did this so that they might seek God. And perhaps they might reach out and find him. Though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Paul's pushing back on the Stoic notion that God is far off. They are deists. They believe God created things and then set it into motion and have in essence stepped back unconcerned of what takes place. And so Paul's pushing back to saying this is a relational God that wants to be known and that knows what's going on. And if he knows what's going on, is what's going on good in his eyes? See, God is present in his creation, and we can know him. This is a knowable God. Now, notice the subtle change in the argument. He moves from nations being established in his authority, but how is one known personally and individually? He moves from the nations to the individual. The sovereign Lord governs the nations, yet the knowledge of him is personal. There is a God, he does speak, and he can be known. See, within Paul's description of reaching out, there's a subtle connotation of it being in the dark. 
They're reaching out trying to find God as a blind person in the dark, cannot see. But even some of your people, even some of your Athenian poets, have stumbled upon the truth of this God's existence, which is why he quotes the poem. Paul's use of Aratus poem, the, the, the verse that says, for we are his offspring, Paul's not endorsing this poet in his belief, but again, it's another contextualization in order for the gospel to drive across. He says, you even believe that we are made in God's image, that there's a relational impact that we have with the gods. If you believe that and I believe that, let me refine it for you, he's saying. We are made in the image of God, sustained by this God, and ultimately answer to this God. See, if Paul addressed atheists, and I'm going to do a little segue right here, this is speaking to deists, but what if he addressed atheists? Would he have the same argument? That God is a self-sufficient creator, that God is a sovereign Lord, and that he's relational? No, you probably wouldn't have. In fact, I would actually say if Paul were addressing atheists, he would have a different argument, and that's because he departs from his usual approach that he's already established in the book of Acts. When he enters a synagogue, how does he normally argue with them? From the Scriptures. Notice we can see where he's getting it from the Scriptures. We can go to different passages, and, but he's not quoting them. Well, why? Well, because these Greeks don't know and probably don't care what the Old Testament has to say. And so it's reasonable to determine that Paul's approach changes depending upon the crowd. So we need to contextualize this gospel presentation to whom we are around, which is why those three questions are something we present. Is there a God? If there's, depending on the answer, is depending on which way we go. Does he speak? What does that mean for me? All of the, each one of those questions, we get to know an individual so we can contextualize the message in a package that we can have a conversation over. And Paul is doing this before our eyes. And so why do we need to study and answer these questions and to engage in rigorous thought of the existence of God? Because it matters. Because it results in a deeper faith, a more profound confidence in who God is and why we believe what we believe. And so as you step into this year, I would encourage you, if there is a part of your mind that thinks, I, can't, I don't think I can give an answer for why I believe God exists, other than He does, and I do. That's fine. That's fair. I, I, I'm, not, that is, I'm not being disparaging to that. But God is calling us to renew our minds, to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And one of the most profound ways to do that is to know, why do I believe God exists? How am I so confident that this is what He says? That's why Jeff and I, we offer classes throughout the year. Jeff's class starting on Wednesdays in the fall is Foundations of Christian Thought, which goes about 16 weeks answering that question, yes, why do we believe in a God? Why is it written? And what does that mean for me? That's his class. I teach a class on Sunday mornings that will start in the fall, Foundations of the Gospel, which will go over these intellectual pursuits, not because we want super smart intellectual people just because, but we want to develop our minds so that our worship of God is greater because of what we know. So please, stretch our minds. Is there a God? Does He speak? And what does that mean for me? We may be looking at someone else answer that question, but we almost answer that question. How would you answer that question? But regardless of where we go in that process or what we take someone down, there's something magical, not magical is probably the wrong word, powerful about how Paul concludes his argument for God and his gospel. The gospel proclamation is not complete without a call to repentance or without repentance. Verse 29, since then we are God's offspring. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. 
Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising that man from the dead. We now know him to be Jesus, the risen Lord. And so Paul boldly presents the reasonableness of our faith before scholars and politicians, before his peers, but he concludes with calling them to repentance. And see, his boldness is not merely innate to his character and nature. Instead, you know where his confidence is grounded? In the rational and productive nature of what he believes. He's deduced that A plus B equals C about what we believe in, and I've seen it in my own life. I've seen the transformation that I've undertaken and encouraged, and others have well. So I step into the midst of you and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So you remember what agitated his spirit in the beginning? What compelled him to start preaching in the, in the marketplace? Idols, temples, people worshiping a God that doesn't exist, rebelling against the only self-sufficient creator. And so the amount of idol worship entrenched in the city is folly and rebellion compared to the infinite personal creator. And so Paul's argument, if we are the offspring of the divine, if we have souls and spirits, why would we worship manufactured things that have no soul and have no spirit? That's his argument to the Athenians. You're worshiping things less than you, but you even believe. See, what's inferred in here is the Stoic belief, both the Epicureans and the Stoics believe that humanity has a soul. They differed what happens after death. The Stokes believed it continued on. The Epicureans believed it died when the body died. But they each believed that we were more than just material, body, and flesh. And so Paul's argument is based upon you worship something less than you, but you believe in something greater than you. Do you not think that angers the one who's created things? And so this is why Paul says, repent! And yet repentance is the very thing that aggravates and agitates our soul the most when we come to share the gospel. Why? Because it's a cliff that we can't see past. We don't know what happens when we ask in the relationship that we have with another person when we call people to repent. We don't know. Are they going to keep me at arm's length? Will this be the end of the relationship? What will they say? What will they think of me? Paul's consideration isn't upon their reaction and instead upon the urgency of God's looming judgment. Paul is confident in the coming judgment, which is why he calls people to repentance and why no gospel proclamation is complete without a call to repentance because God's gospel brings people to action. See, the Athenians up until this point in discussing and debating something new loved to do it because it required nothing of them. But Paul is different. Paul brings them the gospel and says, now you must do something about it. Repent. And the proof of that repentance and the looming judgment is that he rose a man from the dead. And what's their response to that? They rescind his invite. Look at verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some joined him and believed, including Dionysius, the Areopagite, a woman named Demarius, and others with them. 
The gospel presentation and the call to repentance is a line in the sand in which we can't see past. But our joy is not in how people receive it. It's in the partnership of the Holy Spirit in being a part of God's mission. Lo, I am with you always to the end of the earth. We're joining Christ in the mission he's already begun. The Spirit is at work in people's lives, and so we call people to repentance to remove the excuse of ignorance. That's why Paul says it. He now will, there's no longer a time of ignorance. Why does he say that? Because before God, you can no longer give that as an excuse. You heard the gospel. You've heard that God is a self-sufficient creator who is sovereign Lord over all and who wants to be known and is presently able to be known. But Paul knows in the back of his mind that even though you present these facts and these arguments, the rationale and the reasonableness of our faith within the heart of man because of sin gives us clouded judgment and perception of the things of God, but also within the flesh a deep desire to suppress these things. May they not be so. But all will be held accountable. There is no ignorance that one can plead before the Almighty, for he has presented his gospel So we have to ask a question, did Paul fail? Did Paul fail? He had two people, maybe a few others. Certainly different than Berea. It's certainly different by the way in which it's received. He's asked to leave. The invite is gone because he calls people to do something and they don't want to do anything. They just want to keep debating new things. They don't want to change their way of life or acknowledge their wrongdoing. That's the heart of man. But Paul did not fail. Because we don't look at the result, we look at the actions Paul undertook in order to share the gospel. Was he confident in its ability to hang philosophically and reasonably with the academics of his day? Yes. Is he confident the gospel can go into any culture and make a beachhead so that some may find faith? Absolutely. And then using Pastor Jeff, two weeks ago, he gave us a great insight, six points about how we are to go about being relational evangelists in the people's world I'm going to read these points because he found them in Scripture, but I find them all here in Paul's life. And we see them demonstrated by what Paul undertook at the Areopagus and what we are called to re-envision and to redo again in our Areopagus. First, we seek to understand and to be understood. Did Paul seek to understand and be understood? He certainly did. He came to know the people of Athens. He walked around in the marketplace. He went there day after day, debating with them, learning about them, finding what makes them tick, what questions are most poignant to them that need to be answered. And then when he is invited, he reasons with them in such a way that he makes beachheads that are contemporary ideas of thought that he can translate his truth and the truth of the gospel over to them, that they are more easily receptible. So yes, Paul seeks to understand and to be understood. Next, we seek, we insist on respectful dialogue over contested matters of faith. What agitated his soul? Seeing people worship false gods in idols and temples. But did he go around blowing up temples? No. He was angry. He was agitated. He wanted to undo them and to stop them. And I'm, I'm sure he was a fiery little man. But the way he interacted with people is through relationships. He had conversations. He didn't take physical action. The only physical action he took is to stand on the steps and open his mouth for the gospel. He insi we insist on respectful dialogue. We distinguish between acceptance and approval. Well, he did this on the altar of the unknown God. He accepts that it exists, but does not approve that it is the right way to go about worshiping the one true God. We seek to build rapport, and we resist isolationism. He knows their poetry. 
He knows their culture. He knows what makes them tick. He is relationally connected with these Stoics and these philosophers, which is probably why he won some of them. And he did not resolve to hide away and wait for Silas and Timothy. Where the Lord had placed him and the time he had placed him was sufficient enough evidence for him to preach to the Athenians. We advocate for the interests of our sending country. Notice Paul's argument is not filled with, I think this is what God would have me say. This is kind of what I think we should argue about. Paul insisted this is who God is. What you know in ignorance, I declare to you. He acts on behalf of the kingdom he's sent by, as you and I do. When we open our mouth and share the gospel, there is an authoritative element that we need to embrace and accept. We are the emissaries on behalf of a king who has sent us. Last, we establish credibility through an accurate and informed critique of others. Did he critique them? Absolutely he did. What you worship and how you worship is ignorant. It is wrong. He's accurately critiquing them, and he bases it upon the argument, you're worshiping something less than you, but the, God in you, the deities that you even believe are greater than you. Why would you supplant one with the other? That's his argument. It's an accurate critique of what they're doing. But in doing so, he is asked to leave. The relationship is severed, at least from the Areopagus, but we know many have come and accepted Christ. So what does Paul say? I became all things to all people so that I might win them all, so that I might win some. Paul knows the heart of man and the ability to repress and to suppress that which is not God, excuse me, that which is God and replace it with something that is not. And so brothers and sisters, we sit in here, what you have to wrestle with are those questions it, there's a side of this message where I would love for you to interact with and know how, how would I answer these questions? Is there a God? Does he speak? And what does that mean for me? But additionally, on the other side of the fence is do I have a confidence that what I believe in actually can stand the test of time in an academic setting rationally and reasonably? Those arguments exist. They are not absent because the one who created logic and reason is the one whom they're found upon, the eternal, self-sufficient, self-sustaining sovereign Lord of the universe. And so as we leave here today, either you're going to need to answer those three questions or you're going to be the one who's going to figure out where am I, in my Areopagus, when the people I know, what are their answers for this? And how would I share this powerful gospel so that they may repent and become children of God? Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, Father, I petition upon on behalf of this church, that you instill within us a great desire to know you, to resolve to know Christ and him crucified, and to make him known. Father, we, may we have a confidence that Paul had, knowing the effectualness of our faith has produced righteousness. We've seen it happen before our eyes. We testified the miraculous salvation that you have instilled in us and those around us. And so may we have a great boldness to go before many people in our life and share the good news. But give us wisdom and insight to discern their culture and their questions that we may know how to contextualize your gospel in such a way that others will see the benefit and the joy to affirm you as God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.